Okay, all right. We're gonna try Rogerian therapy. That sounds good. Okay. Um, the problem with food began, uh, what, a week ago? I just finished putting together a changing table for the baby, and I went in to pour myself a glass of milk before bed. As soon as I opened the carton, the, the smell caused my throat to seize up. So the smell of milk made you feel sick? That's right. And next morning, the sight of eggs on a griddle did the same thing. Now any kind of food almost sets me off. I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, so you're in a quandary over what to do. Yes. I can't eat anything. Tell you the truth, I'm scared. And that makes you frightened. Joel, is it me? Or are you repeating everything I say? So I have this reading strategy, Lee. Whenever I see like a really long paragraph or something, I actually read it aloud. Well, provided that I'm in a quiet area. But I find that it actually helps me retain the information whenever I get to speak it aloud. Because at first you have to read it and then you have to transmit your thoughts and then you have to put thoughts into words. Do you do something similar to that? Mm, I find that like writing down something that I hear helps me retain it if I write it. But I also think that we may have talked about this before back in like the first season, but like writing something down, um, it may feel like it helps you retain knowledge better, but there might be studies that show that it doesn't actually help you retain it better, or maybe it it helps you retain uh, a a separate memory, like having a memory and then writing it down. um, People who wrote it down maybe remember things differently than the people who didn't write it down. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I tend to write things down to help me re- remember things, but I don't know. Were you a, uh, were you a physical note taker or were you a digital note taker during college? Digital, like a laptop or something? Yeah. I did a bit of both. And I even like, I remember in the time when I was in college, I had Microsoft, uh, or no, it was like Office. Yeah, Microsoft Office, like Word. And there was a new feature in Word where you could like record um, you could put a text recording in your Word document. So it's like an audio, not a text recording, an audio <laughs> recording, which is weird. It's like you type some stuff and then you hit play and listen to some stuff. So I did that in one class where I didn't feel like typing notes. I would just like hit the record button. Of course, I never I never went back and listened to recordings of classes. <laughs> I just like, you know, I. but sorry, to give a short answer to your question, uh, I mostly write write my notes on like a notepad. Mm, okay, got it. But why uh why why reading things aloud? What is this? Well, I was thinking about it because in the clip, Holling says to Joel, like, why are you repeating everything that I'm saying? <laughs> oh, I, see. I think there's like a lot of ways to look into this. I'm not too familiar with um like the strategies that you would use in therapy or anything like that. It's just that like I think that Joel is probably Either A, trying to make Holling remember something, so that's why he keeps repeating everything back, or B, he's trying to remember it himself and make sense of mm-hmm. what Holling is saying. Yeah, I don't know what the technique is here. I think maybe it could be that just just you as a person describing something to someone, uh, you might go for a short, like factual, succinct uh, just statement but if someone asks you a question about it, it makes you maybe try to elaborate. And I think that's what's happening in this like soundbite is Holling will say one thing and Joel, you know, not really knowing what he's doing, but he just like asks him the question to have Holling elaborate more. And maybe there's something that will come out. But yeah, I don't know exactly what the whole Rogerian therapy 
like the whole strategy behind that is. But uh, but Charles, we're not here to talk about psychology and therapy. We're here to talk about what is it? What are we talking about? Yeah. So what we're talking about is the 1990s CBS television series Northern Exposure. This is a Northern Overexposure podcast where we overanalyze said television series right there. My name is Charles, and this is my co-host, Lee. Hi, my name is Lee, and I've seen Northern Exposure a number of times. And Charles, this is your first time watching each episode. We're in season five, so we're veterans of the show, I'd say. Um, But each new episode is a new experience for you. And another portion of this podcast is also to expand the reach of Northern Exposure Uh, This is a show that's now over 30 years old, Uh, you know, when it first began to air, that was over 30 years ago. And uh, yeah, not a lot of people know about it or talk about it today. So to expand the reach of this show, every episode we like to bring on a guest, typically someone who has never seen Northern Exposure, and uh, introduce them to Northern Exposure and get their take on what they thought of the episode. Let's see, should we just jump right into today's episode? Yeah, who are the writers and directors of today? Yeah, so we've got season five, episode 12, Mr. Sandman. Actually, I've seen the title stylized as like uh, MR period Sandman, you know, the, uh, what would you call that abbreviation of Mr. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it written out as M-I-S-T-E-R Sandman. So I don't know exactly what it said on the TV guide back in the day or <laughs> what the, you know, the proper stylization of the title is. But Mr. Sandman, I think we can all agree, uh, conjures a certain uh, idea in your mind. But the director of this episode, Michael Fresco, he's uh, sort of a series veteran as director. He directed in season three, Dateline Sicily, in season four, Thanksgiving, and uh, the season four finale, Old Tree. And then just this season, he's already directed two episodes before this, The Mystery of the Old Curio Shop and Rosebud. And uh, of course, this episode today, Mr. Sandman, and he's got more to come later this season and and I think in season six as well. The writers, big surprise, we've got David Chase and Diane Frolov. Diane Frolov typically writes with Andrew Schneider, her writing partner. And uh, today she's writing with David Chase, the current showrunner of Northern Exposure. Um, The air date, finally, January 10th, 1994. Oh, okay. That's really interesting that David Chase is going to be on the uh, on the story credits. This is his first time, right? His first time writing for Northern Exposure, yes. he. I think he began his career as a writer um, and a writer in television. And he wrote a lot of, uh, at least a few episodes of I'll Fly Away, which is the other brand Falsey um, created TV series. It kind of um, picked up after Northern Exposure began, but sort of ran for a couple seasons. And I believe David Chase even was the showrunner of I'll Fly Away as well. But yeah, this is his first episode to write for Northern Exposure. Uh, I'm not familiar with I'll Fly Away or, or his previous credits, but I do know that in The Sopranos, a large factor uh, in that, in like the story there is like Tony Soprano, the main character, goes to therapy. And like his therapist is her own character. Like that's a big character in the show. So therapy plays a big role in Sopranos, and we can see today as a big theme of um, of this episode. Right. I think that it almost sounds like this is a par for the course Northern Exposure episode, but it's like it's trying to mimic Northern Exposure, and I think that it kind of falls flat. Like, when I watched it, I don't think that, like, my gut instinct was inherently negative for this entire episode. It's just that, like, I thought that... There were a lot of things that were similar to it, kind of like watching a dream of Northern Exposure, <laughs> where you, you're kind of getting like the beats of it. 
But yeah. overall, I would say it's kind of discombobulating. Yeah, I see. And there is a lot of also dreams in this episode, not just uh, psychology and therapy. Um, but I think I can see what you're coming from. And actually, not to like really go into specifics, but overall, I kind of might have preferred to just like to see a less like plot driven episode of Northern Exposure and get more tiny vignettes of like different characters and dreams. I almost felt like this could have been a, a type of episode where it kind of breaks away from a typical dramatic structure and maybe just like it feels like we're visiting a lot of different townsfolk, um, even though we aren't really. Like in this episode, we see a lot of different characters have dreams, but we don't see like each and every character have a dream. Uh, I think that's what I was more expecting on my rewatch. I was like, oh yeah, this is the episode when everyone has the dreams. Um, though there are plenty, plenty of dreams to come. But um, yeah, I'd like to, I'll, I'll try to put put this episode under that lens now when we're discussing it. Like, does this feel like imitation Northern Exposure or just inspired by or yeah, how, how does it make me feel about, you know, the series as a whole? Um, but I guess, well, yeah, is it really, um, I'm trying to think of like the storylines, is it really just kind of like the dreams and the therapy? Mm, yeah, predominantly it's like that. So what you have is obviously you're going to have Holling's plot line, mm -hmm. which is him. Uh, there's the overarching one where everyone's dreams are getting mixed up. You have like a little bit of Joel, but I think Joel's mainly to facilitate Holling's plot line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Joel, Joel is a, a little bit, you know, spanning both dreams and therapy because at some point, you know, the, the dreams will come into part of the therapy. Oh yeah. There is, there is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah. I just realized there, there is a second one that's major. Uh, Maurice's plot line. Yes. Which is also has to do with like, it, it comes about because of dreams, but I guess it has more, uh, interpersonal conflict with, with Maurice and Ron and Eric. But, um, why don't we start with just the first opening of the episode? I think I like to do that uh, before we break off. But so this episode begins with a really neat sort of like steady cam shot. Uh, I believe it's steady cam. It's following with Maggie as she's walking along this dirt road and the camera kind of wraps around her and ends up like in a close up on her face. And she's, it's really interesting. She's got like a very distinct sort of old timey look. Like she doesn't have any makeup on. Her costuming kind of feels like, uh, I <laughs> should have looked up what this called, but it's like, it's got the little cap that you see, like basically like an old paper boy who would be like extra, extra read all about it. Yeah. Uh, newsboy cap. Newsboy cap. There you go. Okay. So, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense. The name of that, uh, <laughs> the newsboy cap and yeah. What's going on in this dream here? Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's odd, but like. I don't like it whenever dreams in uh, media are, lean into oddness because we know <laughs> that dreams are odd. We know that they don't make any sense. They're not going to get a laugh out of me or even an interesting out of me because I know that they're supposed to be strange. So whenever I see dreams happening of this nature in which like they're just trying to be very kooky or wacky, I know that it was written in 1994, so like... You know, they didn't really have things figured out. I'm going to give them a huge break. I'm not going to harp on them whatsoever on this. But I just treat it as normal whenever I see this. So what's happening is that Maggie gets into the car and there's a talking dog. And the dog is speaking French. But 
not just regular French, it's speaking Canadian French with it. And Maggie keeps communicating with the dog. Um, she can kind of guess what the dog is saying based on its tone and its uh, speaking mannerisms. She can realize that it's being quite rude to her. And the dog just wants her to drive. He wants her to keep going. Yeah, I almost wondered if it's like, have you ever had the dreams where like someone is speaking to you in a foreign language or you're speaking in a language foreign to you, but you still understand it? Like, I guess obviously like mentally you can understand it, but whatever sounds you're making aren't English. Have you ever had that dream? No, I never had that dream. Have you? Well, sometimes like, I guess it's with languages that I'm learning to speak. Like I can't really speak Spanish or French very well, but I've definitely studied them. And sometimes I would have dreams where like I'm speaking them very fluently. And I bet it's just my mind playing a trick on myself, you know, because, you know, to to tra- I don't know. It's like a, it's an all it's a mental process, I guess, translating mm. and speaking. So in my dream, I can just say whatever, but I can understand it in my head as being, um, you know, I, I'm speaking the right words. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I see what you're saying. Like, dreams don't need to be kooky always. They, you know, they're inherently strange. So to kind of, it's maybe putting a hat on a hat to make it almost uh, laughably odd. But I actually do like this dream a lot. I think it's, uh, as we learn later at the end of the episode, I like how it's sort of a bit of a, a mystery to try to figure out and interpret what these dreams mean. And I think they find a, um, a happy conclusion of like, you know, they, I think they figured out that it's like, okay, we, we cracked the code here, but I will just say like, man, I wish I had seen this episode before we talked with Ann Gordon, the animal trainer on this series. Cause I'm, I'm almost certain she probably had to work on this episode. And, you know, I guess when they're shooting it, you know, the actress Janine Turner is probably not in the car, you know, as the dog is like barking, I'm sure like off camera is maybe the trainer trying to get the dog to bark. But, um, It's kind of crazy how effective, well, okay, there is definitely special effects going on to make it look like the mouth is moving in a certain way. And I think there's even a little bit of special effects on the eyes of the dog, which kind of looks a little weird. But I guess it's just not a very difficult special effect to pull off because it doesn't look terrible. I mean, it obviously looks strange and funny because it's unnatural. But um, but yeah, I think out of the special effects that we've seen in this season – This one, I think, works most effectively. Um, But apart from special effects, just the dog like barking single syllables, I think really syncs up well with some of those French words. Um, So yeah, I don't know. I think the effect was pretty powerful. And I think it's a good metaphor, uh, maybe not even metaphor, but just like an expression of aggression, a dog barking. And what I think we're supposed to interpret later, this dog maybe represents um, someone who is very angry uh, in that person's life who's having the dream. But Maggie does wake up in bed, typical from Northern Exposure, you know, someone will always like wake up and stir in bed. And I think she walks, yeah, I don't know if she walks to her window, but we do see outside of her window, the Aurora Borealis. Yeah, she does walk to the window because she says, wow. And then we cut to opening titles. Yeah, so we can infer that something is going on because of the Aurora Borealis right here. I think this is where the episode loses me a lot because we've already seen, I mean, we've had an episode titled the Aurora Borealis. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to say season one, episode eight. And I think that we've talked about this already. We're only 12 episodes into the season. We're about halfway through. But 
I think we've revisited the well at least over half the episodes mm -hmm. in this season. Well, yeah, the episode you're talking about, Aurora Borealis, also features um, some dream, right? I think it's like uh, Chris and Bernard are sharing their dreams. Is that that episode? Right, yeah, because there is a lot of like Chris and Bernard episodes. But yeah, I believe it's Aurora Borealis, Chris and Bernard um, have this dream where, yeah, it's the one where like Chris is like driving in the... Um, the 18 wheeler with Sigmund Freud, or it might be Carl Jung. It's Carl Jung. But uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. It's like revisiting the same idea. But yeah, I think not only just the Aurora Borealis, I think there's also probably another episode when Chris, I don't know, I'm trying to think now, because he does the sculpture, like the metal sculpture also in, um, in, that, in that Aurora Borealis episode. There's another episode where he's doing like, Northern Lights, that's like the light installation. I don't know how often... Oh, it's um, the one when uh, Ron and Eric open their like, bed and breakfast. The Aurora Borealis comes to Sicily once again, but it's not about dreams so much. I think they're talking about like uh, fertility in that episode. So this time when we do revisit Aurora Borealis, it's dreams again. But I don't know. I can't complain, though I can see how this is kind of becoming a trope. Whereas, like, typically in Northern Exposure, we can always expect a dream sequence. But at this point, it's kind of just like, oh, let's just, like, give them what they want. You know, like, it doesn't feel as, maybe to you, Charles, doesn't feel as, like, original of an idea. Yeah, I don't have a problem with the dream sequences or anything like that. And I understand that the Aurora Borealis comes often in this show. But I think there's just like a lot of angles that you can explore from rather than just repeating mm -hmm. uh, the mechanism of dreams again. And I think that's why like when I watched this again, I was like, I, I think I've seen like five, five <laughs> or six or seven different variations of this, like, well, let's say, like, the wind comes in and it makes everyone kooky. Oh, the moon is full and it makes everyone kooky. Oh, there's some strange anomaly that's going through the town that's making the townsfolk kooky. I almost wonder if that's, like, Diane Frolov, too. How many episodes, you know, because that is a thing. The trope of, like, mm -hmm. some natural phenomenon changes, like, the people in town. But, yeah, that happens. Yeah. And we kind of have already, like, kind of uh, knocked them down one for... Because there's like two episodes with the Midnight Sun or something, but mm. I do like both of those episodes, but yeah. Yeah, they're, I think they're like, as a vacuum, they're fine episodes. It's just, a, I mean, if you try to recollect it in your brain, you thought about it, you're like, oh, hang on, what's that Northern Exposure episode where like <laughs> uh, some sort of external force comes in and the townsfolk lose their mind? You would like, like you, so many. there's no way you can nail it down. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is where it starts to lose a little bit of points on me on there for originality but yeah let's just keep going and see okay. how this episode ends up so we're gonna start off with a radio address from chris he is going to be like the neutral point from where we can keep going off of and he's looking at the freshly fallen snow he's talking about how beautiful it looks but then he remarks that the sun is kicking up like a magnetic storm somewhere it's messing up his machinery i think we're going to get a lot of themes of machines and machines being out of sync in this episode this is going to be the first instance in which we're going to see it right there and yeah just speaking as a southerner i gotta say that this snow is really lovely to look at I, I understand yeah. that some <laughs> yeah some like uh listeners might be like no no no, no. that's gonna like that's gonna turn into a, like a six incher or seven inch or something like that <laughs> but to us, I think it looks really enjoyable to be in. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, we're watching this on Blu-ray now. I feel like every time 
I watch an, an episode in 1080, I'm just kind of like surprised at how good this looks. I, just because we've been watching, I've you know we've been watching the DVDs before this, so I've never seen it in high definition. And yeah, the snow looks really cool, and just like people's faces, everything just looks a lot better. Um, but we've got. Let's go ahead and move on to the next scene, which will sort of set up the Maurice plotline, perhaps, um, or at least get them get that on track. And then maybe we'll split and choose like what plot line to follow. But just to set up Maurice's like little introduction in this episode, he is uh, bumping into Ron and Eric, or actually I think he like walks straight out of uh, K-Bear to catch Ron and Eric as they are walking by because he's got some Les Mis tickets that he's been holding for them. And they offer him a ride to Anchorage, which is where he's heading. But he says he can't do that because he doesn't want to appear to be... Um, I guess he doesn't want to appear to be a supporter of gay rights or something like that. Because uh, he, he's basically like, you know, I don't want to be seen as like someone who is friends with you, which, you know, is such a mean and just like terrible thing to say to these people who are your friends. But I find it, I don't know what it is, but like Ron and Eric are just like, okay, whatever, man. Like they they don't really take offense to that. You know, some people might say they they should take offense to that, but they're just kind of chill and they're like, whatever, Maurice is going to be whatever he wants to be. Um, they're not going to let it uh, upset them, which is kind of crazy, but I don't know. I think it speaks to the way, I don't know, the way life is in Sicily, at least for like everyone else uh, and then Maurice. Maurice is such like a downer to a lot of characters. Yeah, I would have a different tone if like the show kind of agreed or at least tried to do like a um, there's reasonable points on both sides type of situation. But we're meant to know, even at 1994, that Maurice's point of view is wrong right. <laughs> and that we're later going to get a scene in which like it, it's kind of demonstrated that it's wrong. I'm not like a huge fan of the analogy, but like, I mean, it's 94, like I said, again, it's like, well, whatever you can do to uh, normalize this behavior. That's, it's fine by me. Like, I think that's okay. <laughs> but I'm skipping a little bit ahead to get there. Uh, do you want to continue on Maurice's plotline or do you want to split off into Joel's plotline? Um, yeah, let's continue on Maurice's. Sure. So if we continue on Maurice's, uh, we're going to get a dream sequence. Well, initially, we wouldn't know that this is Maurice's, mm -hmm. but we have the benefit of knowing that now. And what's <laughs> happening in this dream sequence is that somebody is waking up and they're like a salesman of some sort, trying to help a woman select out high heels. And the salesman is going through various shoes saying like, oh, how about this one? And she's like, no, it's going to make my feet look too big. And then... The salesman finally pulls out like the final one. It's like a black, um, very high, high least, heel thing to my yeah, imagination. Right? <laughs> yeah, arch, they pull yeah. that out and the lady leaves. She doesn't have enough time. And the scene ends with the salesman just really looking at this shoe. Yeah, it's the point of view. It's like a point of view dream where we see from the salesman's eyes. And I believe it is. Yeah, it is Ron's voice who is the person who wakes up from this dream um, it's Ron's voice talking to this very fashionable woman, trying to get her to try on different shoes. The last I wrote this down. I don't think it has any significance, but I think it's one of the last lines in the dream is the point of view. Uh, he says, 
please, Marion, like to, trying to uh, convince her to try the shoe on. And she says, my name is not Marion. And then I think that's when she walks away. But, you know, again, I don't know if that really means anything, but Ron does wake up and it's pretty great. He like has to laugh. Like he wakes up and he's laughing as if to you know, to himself, like, what a strange dream I just had. Like, why did I have that dream? Yeah, I didn't make the connection that it was even meant to be sexual. Well, yeah, so that is the, I I guess I, since I've seen this before, I know, but it's like a shoe fetish thing as we come to find out, which um, maybe we should go to the next scene. Is that kind of like in the next scene where we learned that? Yeah, yeah. they're going to address that in the next scene, which is where they're having like... I want to say it's weekly. It's definitely not daily. <laughs> or, you know, maybe it's like half weekly. I, I don't know how long the Aurora Borealis lasts. So like, it has to last long enough for the duration of the Aurora, Aurora Borealis. But what's going on here is that they're having their poker night. Mm-hmm. And Ron and Eric are there along with Joel and Chris. And Ron comes in and starts musing about the dream that he had. And this is where he reveals... That it's like a, a fetish of some sort. Mm-hmm. I didn't put two and two together till right then and there. And Ron remarks of like how basic it is, how just not unique of a thing to have within him. Yeah, he says it's such a trite, hackneyed fetish. I'd like to think I'd be more original. Uh, no reason to shame anybody, Ron, but I think he's just saying like um, it, it was such a you know it felt like it was so randomly to pop up in his dream like why why couldn't it have been crazier or more wild maybe but i gotta say you were talking about the snow earlier this is a very cozy scene to me just the way there's lots of lamplight and uh joel like we kind of circular dolly around the table and we see like from all angles and when joel is talking we can see in the background there's like a jacket that's thrown over an armchair something about that image is just super cozy to me just like throwing off your jacket, sitting down at the poker table. Um, Joel is smoking a cigar in this scene, which I'm pretty sure, I feel like I might just be making this up, but I think that, pretty sure that Joel is like condemning smoking in, in previous episodes. Like he says, I would never smoke. Like it's, it's a, cause he's a doctor obviously, but yeah. Does that sound familiar to you? Uh, cause he does talk actually, about like recall. drinking from time to time, but I feel like he's he's never, I don't think I've ever seen him smoke at least. Maybe he hasn't condemned it. But Joel has his own dream. He's like in the board game Candyland. Yeah, he talks about eating like a, like a peppermint tree right there. And we're going to see the idea of candy appear with Joel later. But the big pivotal thing in this scene is that Chris remarks how Walt and Minnie, two different townsfolk, were having separate dreams. So Walt was having dreams about Minnie being a CEO of some sort, and Minnie was having dreams about Walt's weasel traps. And Chris was saying that, like, the dreams were actually being switched between these two individuals. Yeah. Actually, I think Walt's like has, like, a dream of a CEO that he knew at the time, but then Minnie had Walt's dreams, so it's, like, really, like, a weird... Like, it's not necessarily a, tr- a direct trade, but people are having different people's dreams. And this is like a historical precedent, says Chris. He says that it was like back in the winter of 57 or some like year back in the day. And he's saying like, this did happen. So he's like suggesting basically, let's see, I wrote it down. What do you think drives all this gray matter up here? Speaking of the brain, electricity. 
uh, you know, brain waves surfing on synaptic junctions. If your radio can go out because of sunspots, why can't your cerebellum? It's all a matter of reception. And it seems to me like these signals are going to get crossed somehow. It's all logical. Of course, Joel says, you know, it's a it's an interesting idea, but physiologically probably impossible for something like that to happen. But the core sci-fi here is that if brain activity is electric, can it be interfered with? And does that then translate to uh, somehow transmission of dreams? Uh, that's what we're working with. At least uh, I think that that's the prevailing theory that Joel will have to come to accept later because he, he, uh, he bucks against it for a while until he, um, until he accepts it. Yeah, again, we're getting another imagery of machines. Uh, Chris relates it to radios mm-hmm. and saying how it's all just electricity right there. And I think it's a really interesting analogy to use, how we're going to be using a very human, very natural thing, which are dreams, and comparing it to cold-hearted machinery. Well, not necessarily like cold-hearted, but more just like very mechanical, very purposeful. No machine mm-hmm. is built by accident. They're usually created with a design. They're created with a purpose. Yeah, that's really, yeah, I like the way you put that. Um, and for me, the, like sci-fi, I'm I'm in it for sci-fi, especially like, it depends, but like usually it doesn't really have to make a whole lot of like logical sense to me as long as it's like an interesting um, setup that we're going yeah. with. Have you, I'm sorry to cut you off, but like this just reminded me, you've seen The Matrix, right? Yes. Yeah. I haven't seen the latest, The Matrix, the M4 T-R-I-X, Matrix 4. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I haven't seen that one either. But like in The Matrix, famously, the the premise of it is that like the machines are like harvesting humans because of like the electricity that they generate right there. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes like enough sense yeah. to me to be like, I think you can probably build a movie on this, man. Whatever. Yeah. A lot of people harp on that. Like a lot of people are like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Like human beings wouldn't generate enough electricity. The best way to do that was we could blah, 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 blah. And it's like, dude, come on, man. Like I get why people like nitpicking, <laughs> but I think that like when it gets to that degree, I'm just like, just like kind of just shut off your brain for like just a tiny bit and just allow the premise to flow in. I'll go even further to where like I'm watching the sci-fi movie and it's like something catches my, like catches me and I'm like, that probably doesn't make any sense, but like I can't, I don't have enough time to think about it right now and I'm not that smart. So I'll just go like vibe with the movie, you know, like as long as it's not that <laughs> And there's actually, there's a good term or there's like a good strategy in this in writing where it's like, I just had to look it up, but Aristotle, apparently this is a quote from Aristotle, probable impossibilities are to be preferred to improbable possibilities. So in like drama, we would more like to hear a story about something that's impossible, but perhaps likely uh, rather than something that is like very likely to happen, but not, you know, it's kind of coincidental. So yeah, we, we, we're in it for impossible things to happen in our drama. It just has to be like a little probable. Yeah, I think that like the main thing of The Matrix is not the electricity. The main <laughs> thing is how, you, you know, it's dealing with free will. That, that is the main concern. So I think like when people try to mm-hmm. focus on this one little aspect and then claim that like, that's why this movie is flawed. That's why it doesn't make any sense. It's like, you're now You're missing like, the, the big ideas. You're, you're, yeah. Yeah. You're, like, you're missing so much, which is ironic. <laughs> but uh, well, one yeah. Thing, one thing, sorry, just before we move on from the scene, something we didn't point out is Maurice's attitude 
gratitude. Um, and me being someone who's like already seen this episode, and I know that Maurice, this is like Maurice's dream technically. And maybe you've picked it up on it because like Chris starts to talk about like people are having other people's dreams, like whose dream could this have been? Well, we can tell from Maurice's attitude in this poker game is that he's like trying to brush past all this dream talk. He just wants to keep the card game going because this whole talk about um, shoe fetishes is making him uncomfortable uh, as if it were maybe a deep, dark secret that he doesn't want to be known. Yeah, uh, that's going to carry forward for the very next scene because it's going to be another dream sequence where it's like at a fancy party of sorts. Again, it's another first-person view uh, being shot right there. And the person kind of wanders throughout the party until they get into a woman's closet. He rummages through and he finds one particular shoe to savor, and then the camera kind of moves over to the mirror, and it's revealed that it's a very oldened Maurice. Yeah, this was an interesting... Okay, so we were just talking about nitpicking in sci-fi. This is where I nitpick the dream uh, logic in, in this episode, because in every other dream, the person who's dreaming is like the main character of the dream. Like in Maggie's dreams, even though it's supposed to be Hauling as the main character, Maggie is herself in that dream. And uh, in, in Ron's first dream about the shoes, it's Ron's voice. It's not Maurice's voice. Um, but, you know, now in, uh, in, this, in this dream, we see Maurice, even if it's Ron's point of view, which I, I don't know, maybe that's just like the most economical way to um, verify that this is like Ron now knows for sure that it's Maurice's dream. And in fact, when he wakes up, he's like waking up smiling and he wakes up Eric, who is sleeping next to him. And he says, you're not going to believe this. But yeah, did that did that also like catch you off guard or is it just me that I was like nitpicking that? No, you, what you say makes sense. I just didn't <laughs> catch on to it. Okay, yeah. Um, I just kind of rolled with the punches right, right. right there. <laughs> well, yeah, so now we know that, or at least now Ron and Eric know that this dream belongs to Maurice. And let's see, the next time that we see them is uh, while Maurice is sitting down at the bar in the brick and Ron and Eric come sit by him and they're kind of like smirking at him. And, you know, they're, they're, they're loudly going on about shoes, like Ron and Eric to each other. Um, and Maurice is kind of just listening, not trying to say anything. Like this is not a conversation he wants to involve himself in. And then Ron and Eric like directly confront Maurice. And I think they say something like, Hey Maurice, um, you know, when you were over for poker night, did you happen to leave anything back at our house? You know, and, and Maurice is like, nah, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, well, are you sure? Because like Ron found this dream and he thought it might be yours. Like they're now directly trying to like pin it on Maurice and he's not having it. Yeah, it steadily dawns on Maurice that these two are talking about Maurice's hidden fantasy. And Maurice storms out of the brick and confronts the two. And he tries to turn it around by saying, like, I'm not the pervert in this town. Mm -hmm. Y'all are the perverts in this town right here. And yeah, Ron and Eric say, like, it's fine. Like, everybody has their own little thing. Uh, I mean, again, it's like kind of, I'm pretty sure they're saying this from Maurice's point of view. <laughs> yeah. So that like, I can, we can, we're a little bit more comfortable with this. Right. But they're trying to equate being gay with being like some sort of like yeah. thing that, yeah, a perversion, which is like obviously like that's not like an equal thing. But I think if we're coming at it from Maurice's point of view, then it totally makes sense. Yeah. I think it's like, 
the writers kind of giving Maurice his just desserts. Like if he thinks that Ron and Eric's love is perverted, uh, well, let's actually give Maurice a perversion and that can blow up in his face. Though, you know, some people would say there's nothing wrong with shoe fetishism. Like, don't, what is it like? Don't kink <laughs> shame anybody. But um, yeah, and I, I don't think anyone in Sicily would be, uh, would call Maurice a pervert for liking women's shoes. Um, but now it's, at least to Maurice, it's blowing up in his face. Uh, so I th- yeah, I guess that's, as you're saying, I think that's kind of what they meant. I don't think they're trying to say that um, homosexuality is is a perversion. It's just Maurice's point of view, uh, his his fl- flawed point of view. I only noticed in, in this scene, it took me up to this scene to notice it, but Ron doesn't have a beard. That's what I was like missing. Ron normally has a, oh. a full beard and he has no beard in this episode, which is like, I gotta say a little odd. I don't think like he looks bad without a beard. It's just like, of course, we've only known him with a beard. Okay, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense right there then. I was wondering why he looked off uh, as well. <laughs> I guess we're going to weave them in later, but there is like technically like a small third plot involving Chris, but mm, what happens with him? We, we can. Okay. Uh, he's trying to connect the dreams. Oh. So he's like constantly on K bear. He's yeah. just like kind of interjecting between the two plot lines right there, but it's not like a major one. And I think we could talk about it later. Okay. Yeah. But the next time we're going to see Maurice is going to be another poker night right there. And everyone's gathered around. They're having a good time. And Ron and Eric, uh, I forget what the exact maneuver it is. I think it's like they checked and they raised or something like that. Right. It, That's what they it's did. not like an official thing that mm-hmm. they're breaking. It's more like a house rule, according to Maurice. And Maurice insinuates that these two uh, are cheating because they know each other intimately. And this intimacy is what allows them to give them this... Um, like uh, hidden information, like they would know more about each mm-hmm. other than other people would know about. It's subtext to deal with like, you know, knowing dreams of other individuals mm. will give you yeah. a deeper insight into that individual. And he accuses them of cheating, which gets something out of um, Eric, more more of a response than I thought, mm-hmm. because he didn't really rise to the bait of being called uh like a deviant or anything right. like that. But he rises to debate of being called a cheater, which would kind of make sense because I guess like to him, he's like being gay is like supernatural. So he's mm-hmm. like, I'm not going to get mad if you call me yeah. that, I guess. But if you call me a cheater, that's like a smear against my character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, that's why I'm going to get that angry. And yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And that's why uh, he's held back by Ron. And essentially this is like the climax of this, uh, this plot line. Yeah, they don't match to meet Maurice's threats and Maurice just leaves. But um to go back and talk about the what what Maurice what upsets Maurice is the as you were saying, like checking and then raising. I'm not I'm definitely not a poker pro, but we've played poker together. We we say that in like a lot of parentheses. Like you played poker. So like we we used to have this thing where we play poker with uh, a group of friends yeah. and I was trying. I wasn't like I wasn't, <laughs> like, wasn't trying. But it's just like I don't understand poker on like a instinctually deep level. You're like always referencing like what how what each um combination of cards is valued at or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And I would do plays that like mathematically wouldn't work out. Like mm. if you thought about it, to be like, all right, chances are is that like he 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 probably at least has a pair and you got nothing. Yeah, you're still <laughs> going in. That makes no sense. But like I didn't really understand like how 
like the statistical right. value. Like if the right card came up, you would be good, right? It's just like right. you don't know how, how likely it would be. Right. So I would always just go in like 95% of the time, <laughs> even if it was like we weren't betting like real money. Yeah. So that's why I think that's why our mutual friend Addy would get mad because you had to like pretend that it was real money because then you would become a rational actor. Yeah. But if it's all fake money, then you can just go on on every play and, the, and you know, just see if it works. That element of chaos really like swings the whole game because if everyone else is like trying to operate on like percentages, but then this one person is like coming in doing chaotic plays, it's like, oh, I don't know how to read them. I just remembered, of course, uh, Donks. Do you remember Donks? Oh, yeah, yeah. So like Donks is... Uh, two, two twos or something? It's or, specifically twos. yeah. What's the one where it's like a two and a jack? Like that's apparently a really bad hand. Uh, it's not. Donks. Is that even okay. a pair? Donks is two. Is two twos, right? I yeah, think yeah, so. yeah. It's, okay. it, it's the lowest pair that you can get, and it's called donks. Um, and we we eventually just said that was like any pair was a donks. So if you had like two tens, we just called a donk. Obviously uh, not it. Obviously, don't know what we're talking about. But uh, anyway, checking and then raising. I don't know if that is. Um, uh, well, they said it's just like a house rule that they like, or Maurice claims that it's a house rule that you're not allowed to check and then raise. I mean, obviously you can't raise after you fold or anything like that, but um, but no, I mean, I don't know. I guess I don't know poker, so I shouldn't, but I guess I can ask, is that normal? Um, if you're a poker player and you listen, is it okay to check and then raise, or is that typically frowned upon in most uh, house rules? If you know the answer, write into northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. But anyway, maybe one day we'll get better at poker, Charles. Uh, we'll get another chance <laughs> to play again. Uh, there's a very interesting reference being used by Maurice. He calls Ron and Eric Spin and Marty. Uh, Spin and Marty was like this like super old, like 1950s uh, television show that ran on, I want to say it was Disney, actually. Yeah, I'm correct. It was a serialized Disney television adaptation of the novel. And a very short summarization was that like there was... Um, this very rich orphan named Marty. And then there was uh, this poor individual named Spin who worked at the ranch and Spin was a lot more athletic and popular. And Marty came to go live with Spin and it's kind of like uh, two worlds colliding because of, you know, initially Marty was get bullied or like they would dismiss him as uh, this like rich boy. He drove in a limousine. And mm. through Marty's eyes, he would view the ranch as like very dirty old farm and stuff like <laughs> that. And then at the end, they would like reconcile their differences and they would get to know each other. Uh, I tried digging around. I didn't see if there was any like like homoerotic um, undertones right. on there. But evidently to Maurice, there there is. Yeah, there's some connection he's making there for sure. Um, yeah, I didn't look that up, but... Uh but I, you know, I think I saw something on Moose Chick, but I didn't really go any further either. Like I don't really know the exact connection he's making, but I think I think we sort of just from the way he's saying it, like he's trying to put them down for sure in some way. But uh, we see Maurice next sitting alone on a bench outside the brick, and Ruthann is walking by feeding the birds. Actually, yeah, I'm trying to actually. I didn't think about this at the time, but uh, so she's like feeding the birds, and none of the birds will eat any of her, um, it's like some bread that she has left over. wonder if that has any particular meaning, but did you read any? I think it does. Yeah. Cause there's a lot of, uh, a lot of food mm -hmm. being used right. obviously with, um, Hollings plot line. But I think that food and drinks have a place throughout this episode. I think 
This is also what kind of annoyed me. Is that like, <laughs> I think it's the same theme of food that we're used to. So when we talked about like breaking bread and how uh, food bridges the divide between individuals and how we use it as an offer to mm-hmm. get closer to people that we don't really know and that there's more that unites us than divides us. I think that theme is being replayed again in this episode. Mm-hmm. So it's like uh, Ruth Ann feeding the birds is in a way like her trying to get closer to Maurice or something. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, that's definitely one way to read it right there. Okay. Um, I can talk about it more in the other plot right. line. Yeah, I think that will deal. Yeah, the ending of this one also has that too. The ending okay. of this one also has that. But like, okay. But uh, yeah, Ruth Ann is giving breadcrumbs to these birds and this is where she has like a heart to heart conversation with Maurice and saying that like, essentially if you boil it down, what Ruthanna is saying is that like, there is this quote unquote jungle within individuals that like there, there's no law. So like anything goes, which is, <laughs> well, you yeah. wouldn't use that in today's term, but like back then I think that's, I think that's an acceptable way to say it in 94. Well, yeah. I mean, Maurice is talking about like, uh, I guess sexual perversions and, uh, you know, hypothetically speaking, Ruthann, like what if someone uh, that you respected had a shoe fetish? Um, but let's just hear it. You know, it's kind of hard to figure out. Let's let's play what um, what Ruthann says. I have a soundbite, so. If you're talking about sex between grown men and women, I couldn't disagree with you more. Huh? This is sex, Maurice. Sex. So? It's not table manners or parliamentary procedure. Uh, sex is not civilization. It's, it's the jungle. It's a darkly mysterious, irrepressible, primitive drive. So we should just throw all caution to the wind. Anything's acceptable. I'm too old to worry about what's acceptable and what's not. As long as nobody gets hurt, let them be. It's just human. We all have the jungle inside us. Yeah, I see what you're saying. We all have the jungle inside us is what she she boils it down to. But I think actually at first they're just talking about homosexuality, I think, because Maurice is like angry about Ron and Eric or something. Um, they do end up um, sort of like spinning that towards Maurice being like, okay, hypothetically speaking, what if I had a um, shoe fetish or whatever? Yeah, Ruthann then quotes Oscar Wilde and she says, uh, nothing human is alien to me. And what I'm taking from this is that, like, it all falls underneath the wide spectrum of what uh, humans can experience. So, like, even this is part of its rainbow right there. So, Ruthann is just trying to introduce to Maurice that there are other ideas that fall beneath his purview. And that, like, even though he may not accept it, like, yeah, it's just going to have to be the way it is because inevitably it's something that you can't control. Yeah. According to her. Yeah. So, like, we're approaching this with 2022 eyes. We 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 understand how like the the thoughts have changed, the the viewpoints have changed. We've gotten a better understanding and a much more generous way of allowing certain voices to be heard. So, why don't we abandon that for like just a point, just for the sake of this argument? I know it is a wrong way to look at it, but let's revert back to 1994 eyes and try to try to use what they're trying to use. So, what they're trying to tell us is that like essentially there are things that which like we hold within ourselves. So, like within Maurice, you're saying that like he has a shoe fetish, and they're equating that to homosexuality. In, a, in, a, in some small way. And 
if that was like a true statement, and then we continue forward from there, what Ruthann is trying to say is that it's okay to have uh, something that's not acceptable, or at least generally not acceptable uh, thing within you to be reflected and shown to all of the other people because she relates it to the jungle. She says, like, anything flies, it's okay. You just can't control everything. Obviously, there are problems with the statement whenever we look at it in this manner. But again, like I'm saying, I'm just trying to look at it from how they were looking at it in 1994. So the next time we see Maurice is he's paying a late night visit to Ron and Eric. He goes to their place and he gives them a bottle of Lagavulin 16-year, a very fine, I think it's a single single malt or whatever. Is that what it is? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Very fine scotch. And he apologizes to them straight up, just like kind of matter of factly. It's pretty short. He doesn't get into any messy details. Um, he just says like, basically, I accused you of cheating even when I knew that that wasn't true. And um, he says something like, I, he's, I have a lot of things burdening my mind or something like that. A lot of things on his mind. And he's about to leave when Eric uh, stops him and insists that he stay to have a drink with them. Marty says, no thanks, maybe another time. And I like how Eric like quickly pipes in really fast and he says, okay, some other time. Or maybe it's Ron. But yeah, just like, you know, I, I like that this isn't left. I don't think anyone's left feeling sour at the end of this. Maurice wants to show that he still respects them, perhaps, and still wants to keep them as friends. And when they say some other time, when they agree, that's in a way showing like, you know, that they acknowledge Maurice and they sort of feel bad for him. Yeah, I think that's a good way to read into it. I think that's also like, I think Maurice is trying to reset it back to the status quo, but mm-hmm. his status quo is inherently imbalanced right. because he thinks that it's just something you just brush aside rather than accept. And in fact, when he apologizes, he doesn't apologize for his views. He apologizes for his behavior. That is the thing that he tries to apologize to them for. And when Eric offers to drink with Maurice as a reconciliation, Maurice actually declines it. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, I actually read it as like, I'm willing to go this far, but I'm not willing to go like the whole way. Yeah, I actually like that reading because whenever they say another time, then that just might mean like Maurice isn't, he hasn't gone all the way there yet to like accepting them. And this suggests that, okay, there will be a time soon that Maurice could get there, you know? It's like small steps. Right. And again, I think that's, you know, of course, like incremental small steps are way better than not having them. In fact, that's like the most realistic way in which Maurice would change. I think it would be wrong for Maurice to wholeheartedly accept it from just Mm -hmm. a while ago, because obviously this is something that's built deep within him. He talks about how like, you know, he was like fighting in wars and no one ever talked about this type of stuff. To him, his viewpoint is a, like, this is like some sort of grave sin. So for him to make even the small step of admitting that he was wrong in some way and trying to give them a very nice present is speaking a lot for his actions. So I think that like, this is a natural flow of the characterization of Maurice and yeah, you know, like we talked about, it ends on a positive note. Yeah, I think that's like just like a really good ending for what's happening here. Because I agree with you, if Maurice had just gone from A to B completely without no like, or sorry, I guess A to C, you know, with no middle ground. Um, if he had just gone from zero to 100 and just like totally flipped and, and changed and for the better, you know, if he had gotten there, 
might have seemed a little disingenuous uh, or just uh, not not very realistic. And I like that it's um, it, it makes that it makes such a small incremental change seem very strong and powerful. And I like how they can highlight that. Just like the smallest little changes are very lovely human moments. All right, that's going to be finishing up with Marisa's plotline, but let's rewind back to one major one and one smaller minor one, which are going to be respectively Hollings' plotline and Chris's plotline. So we played you the soundbite earlier in the beginning, which is where Joel is trying to use Rogerian therapy on Holling, but the context of this scene is that they're in Joel's office and Holling has now asked Joel to be his therapist, something of which Joel is not comfortable with because there are two different schools of thought. They're completely different. You wouldn't ask somebody that predominantly worked on the brain to go suddenly perform foot surgery. There are completely (laughs) different fields right there. So Joel's trying to do the best that he can. He tries to diagnose Holling, and Holling reveals that the thing that started it all off was actually milk. Mm-hmm. He looked at like a container of milk or something. It set off this huge visceral reaction to him in which he couldn't stomach anything. And then now whenever he looks at any food, it causes him, it makes him very nauseous. Right. And he's like, you know, how am I going to own a restaurant and, and not be able to see, stand the sight and smell of food? I like how the sort of the patient's chair in this scenario is like this very duct taped um, just like crappy, uh, arm, uh, like office chair, you know, it's not your typical, uh, therapist office. And the end of this scene is actually pretty great. It's, you know, it's the soundbite that we played and Holling is just, you know, remarking, are you just repeating everything that I say? Which I guess is the, that's the whole shtick of Rogerian therapy, just repeating and asking questions. You know, Holling says that to Joel and we cut to Joel and he's just like, it's a pretty great expression. He's like, not going to say anything. Uh, he's just staring him down, you know, <laughs> like the look that he has. <laughs> yeah. Before we get off the scene, there is like one small line in which Holling says that I think is like one of the thesis statements. Holling says, Joel, I just don't feel right telling my secrets to a stranger. So again, it's hmm. like this idea of people revealing some hidden facet yeah. of them to other people. Yeah, Joel's like, you should go see a doctor elsewhere because I'm not really a trained uh, psychotherapist. But Holling says, no, I don't want to, sh- I feel uncomfortable sharing that with other people, which, yeah, I- underlines that theme you just said. I didn't think of it that way. Um, but let's see. Next up, Joel is now maybe wanting to try a Freudian approach, I think. Uh, so he he's, he's guiding hauling through these ideas, kind of suggesting that eating food is in a way sexual or also like another way he says like, you know, what if eating food is, it's like, it's putting something foreign and something unclean into your body. And hauling says, well, you're getting awfully personal, Joel. Um, though I guess this is the point for this, this approach. But I, I like that Joel is kind of having, at least like he's, I think he's starting to have a little bit of fun with this and that like it's actually starting to interest him because as we said in that earlier scene, uh, he's, he, it's not his field of medicine. So he doesn't really feel like he ought to be doing it. But because he's been like drafted into this role, he's, you know, going to try his best and it's kind of maybe uh, an exciting challenge for him to do this. 
And it just, it did remind me a lot of the episode Old Tree, where there's this old tree that, you know, some of the townsfolk or Maurice wants to cut down. He says, it's like, gonna, it's dead, it's gonna die. So we need to cut it down. The rest of the townsfolk don't want the tree to come down. So they convince Joel to be like the tree doctor to determine how long this tree has to live. If it's like, if it's sick, can it get better? And Joel says something like, I'm not a botanist, like I'm not your man, but he still <laughs> does it. And I, th- I think later he even like does sort of take pride in, like I know he's like getting a lot of books about trees. And in this episode, he's getting a lot of books about psychotherapy. That's really curious that you bring that up because I remember that there was an earlier episode. I want to say it was back in like season two or season one where Maggie's plane breaks down and Joel has to be a doctor to the plane. And that parallels with today's episode because the plane is a machine Mm -hmm. and the human brain is sort of being treated like a machine. In fact, Joel steps out of the office with Holling and goes and talks with Marilyn saying like, hey, did you get any of the books that I was uh, trying to order from? I want to read through them. And Marilyn says like, hey, is everything going okay in there? And Joel says, it's a little bit like a vapor lock. Mm -hmm. A vapor lock is like, um, the full definition is a partial or complete interruption of the fuel flow in an internal combustion engine caused by the formation of vapor or bubbles of gas in the fuel feeding system. So simply, Vapor lock occurs when liquid fuel turns to vapor before it gets to the carburetor or fuel rail. It's a very mechanical expression. Uh, It's also like a change of state that's being interrupted from like liquid to gas. There's something that's interfering with the process right there. But his word choice is extremely curious right there in that like it feels like he's trying to treat a machine just like he's trying to treat Maggie's airplane. Exactly, yeah. That's a very specific metaphor to use. That's very mechanical. And yeah, I did actually didn't know vapor lock meant like engines. I kind of figured it was, you know, it sounds very mechanical, but just like just knowing that, that's even more doubling down on this idea that it's a machine that he's trying to treat in a way. Holling even ends the scene talking with Joel saying like, hey, uh, the theater's dark. Mm-hmm. He's relating to his brain. And he relates it to a theater, which has like a projector within it to beam images into your brain. Yeah, because Joel asks Holling, well, so Marilyn says, you know, because Joel's kind of tapped out with like what he should be doing, his approach, his strategy. Marilyn says, well, you should uh, ask him about his dreams. Like that's a thing that I guess she has experience with. Um, so maybe that'll help out. And Joel's like, no, nah, I don't know. I don't, I don't really think that's the right way to go. But sure enough, Joel goes back into his office and starts asking Holling about his dreams. Or he says, have you had any dreams lately? And what you were saying, Charles, as he says, the theater's dark, which yeah, it's another, yeah, you could say it's another mechanical uh, illusion there. Do you dream often? I I have had worse luck now to remember my dreams, but I do dream every night. It's just like, you know, they say like, if you don't, if, if you don't think of your dreams right when you wake up, or if you don't, some people say like, write them down right as you wake up and that will help you remember them better. But yeah, I mean, like I'll usually just wake up and start my day. So if I don't give my dreams much thought, I find that they just kind of like disappear. Though every once in a while, something that happens during the day will trigger this memory that I that I dreamt of like the night before. It's crazy how sometimes like the things you dream you know, have a correlation to what happens the day you wake up. Uh, obviously, it doesn't happen very often, but I find myself remembering just like 
moments or feelings from a dream just because something in the day sort of triggered that memory. Mm. What about you? I actually, I, I, okay. So like Joel says that like everyone dreams Mm -hmm. and I think there's like, is a possibility that I am dreaming, but I simply just don't remember it at all when I wake up. I think that's like a possibility right there, but yeah, um, taken from that context, I don't dream or like <laughs> I at least don't remember my dreams. I, I might have like a dream like maybe like once a month that mm-hmm. I remember. Yeah. But otherwise, dreams or nightmares don't really happen with me. I usually just go mm-hmm. to sleep and then I just wake up and then it's, it was just a blank period. Yeah. I usually don't have nightmares and I I don't think anyone likes nightmares, but I think I think nightmares are definitely more memorable for me. So I like, you know, I don't get them very often. So the bright side of it is like, of course, it's terrifying whenever you're in them. But after the fact, it's just pretty fascinating because it's like sticks with you and, and you can look back at it. But uh, I guess some people would be terrified of it. But well, Charles, what about like if you have you ever like woken up in the middle of the night or been like abruptly awoken? Do you remember any dream then or still pre- still pretty blank? No, I do. Like okay. that—that's happened before, so but that like happen. maybe, maybe only like three times in my life. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, it's a, you know I'm not gonna say it's impossible, but like I generally just don't have uh, that many dreams. This isn't like a recent thing either. This has mm-hmm. been like for my entire life. I've just never really had that many dreams that I've had. But you know I can't rule out the possibility that it's always been there. It's just I don't remember it when I wake up. But mm-hmm. anyway. Speaking about dreams, we're going to get to another dream sequence involving Maggie. She's going to be driving this taxi again. She's trying to chauffeur something. And this time, her passenger is a piece of machinery. It's like mm-hmm. one of those um, one of those things that you use to build bread. It's like like a, it's got like the, I think it's called a stand mixer, but it's like a mixer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, there we go. <laughs> that is going to be her passenger. And... It, again, speaks Canadian French with her, tells her that she's a coward, and just all around (laughs) just bullies her. And the important thing in this dream sequence is that that piece of machinery then transforms into an actual Mm -hmm. bona fide human being, a grown old man. Yeah, and he's saying, like, I'm your your father. And she's like, you're not my father. Like, I've never seen you in my life or something like that. The, The dream ends because, like, she nearly wrecks the cab and wakes up. But yeah, it's this, yeah, it's uh, I don't know how you describe this. I guess like stereotypical Canadian French older man um who we later will understand this is like Holling's father. But yeah, that's pretty much that dream. I found it interesting that, you know, after Maggie wakes up, we fade to black like a commercial break and when we come back from commercials, it's the dream that it's like Maurice fi- sneaking into the bedroom and getting like shoes out of the closet. So we have like a dream on either side of this commercial break, um, which I thought, you know, it's pretty interesting. But uh, we already talked about that dream. So when we do get back to hauling Maggie, Joel, that sort of plot line, it's back to hauling in the brick and he's serving a patron uh, and he's got to keep a, a napkin close to his mouth and nose because like anytime he's delivering food or handing it off, he's just, he's just feeling so sick. And there's a short little bit where like he runs into Shelly and she's like, oh, we still got to pick the baby stroller. And basically we can just see it's clear that um, Holling is avoiding any sort of like talking about the baby here. So obviously there's, I feel like that's, there's, that has something to do with um, 
this this problem with with food aversion. Yeah. Oh, also in this scene, like right after that, hauling over here is Maggie. She's sitting with Ed, telling Ed her dream. Actually, I think this is the only time Ed is in the episode, unfortunately. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, I think he probably only has one line too. I think he says like "Wow," but maybe he has more. I can't remember. Well, go ahead. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, you basically summarized it right there. The important things to take away from this scene is that hauling again is demonstrating that he has a version to specifically milk because mm, Shelly yeah. talks about like milk and hauling says, don't say that word around me. Uh, curiously, Maggie and I want to say Ed as well are drinking milk <laughs> at their table right there. And they're having this conversation between Maggie and Ed. She's relating her dreams and saying how strange it is. And Holling overhears it, and he deduces from what she's saying that this man that she's speaking about is actually his father. Yeah, it either sounds like a dream that he's had before, or maybe like a um, maybe it was like a real life event or something. And he even gets Maggie to describe the man that she saw, and he's like, "Well, did he have a mole right here on his face?" And it matches like a, the description fits for Holling's father, and. Yeah, I think that's a pretty pretty startling scene. I think that's pretty cool. And yeah, even Ed Ed agrees. He says, Well, I think, or he has like, I think he has the last <laughs> line in the scene. Like Holling is like, Maggie, you had my dream. And then Ed is like, Wow, or something like that. But oh, the next thing we see, I think is pretty interesting. I guess it's uh oh, it's Chris, which I thought this scene, after I saw it, I was like, oh, this could just be cut out of the episode. But it does tie into the um, the very last moment or one of the last moments in the episode. But Chris is basically talking about um, different natives, uh, their sort of relationship to the Aurora Borealis and how some natives in North Dakota believed that it was um, the fire of warriors cooking up their enemies in big old pots, he says. And he says the Inuit believed that it was probably some badass spirit who's going to swoop down and pluck out your eyes or cut off your head, he says. And um, among the Alaskan natives, however, they view the Aurora Borealis as not being so tough, he says. If you whistle at the Aurora, it's going to dance to your tune. I thought that was a really interesting sort of mythological breakdown between the different cultures, how in most cultures it's viewed as sort of maybe maybe more uh, predatory. But in this native Alaskan view, it's something that is maybe under your control. And I just, I don't know, it sounds so interesting. I can imagine young children of this culture, like whistling when they see the Aurora Borealis and feeling like, mm. am, I, am I doing something to affect this? I don't know, but it's just an interesting belief. It's like, what can I do to whistle to make it work? I don't know. There's still some magic to it that even knowing that you're in control, being able to whistle still, it seems like, I don't know. Right. And I think if we continue this metaphor, I think there's something to be said and applied to this episode and their depiction of dreams. So in Maurice's plotline, we see how vulnerable he becomes whenever people learn about his hidden fantasies. And uh, there's a way in which you can twist that and prey upon them and bully him just like he's kind of doing to Ron and Eric uh, earlier. Or you can take it in another manner and use that to bridge the divide and understand that, like, uh, it doesn't have to be that way. You can use that to deepen your bonds with other individuals. So 
you know, just like how these cultures saw it as a predatory thing, the other culture saw it as like a way to be like, uh, it's actually something which you can dance with. Mm-hmm. You can work with your another person to create something beautiful. Yeah, that's a good uh, that's a good analogy there. It's a good interpretation where like it's not something necessarily that has to be so dark and dangerous. It's uh, yeah, whistling and dancing is a is a sort of a partnership. That's pretty cool. I didn't even think about that. Um, so now Holling brings Maggie to his therapy appointment. Joel thinks this is absurd. Um, he's bucking against this idea of the, the whole like subconscious is, is not a radio station. He says, brainwaves are not bouncing around the ionosphere looking for a receiver. Trust me. The noggin is a self-contained unit. I think it's funny. Holling says, well, couldn't like dreams leak out somehow? Maybe like that's a thing. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it gets pretty confrontational, uh, our adversarial between Joel and Maggie here, because I think this is the scene where like Joel sort of goes on with it, but he's worried that Maggie is um, maybe like encouraging uh, Holling in, in a wrong direction and he wants Holling to get there naturally, something like that. Yeah, he wants him to arrive at the conclusion with uh, without any guidance by mm-hmm. them, because then it kind of makes sense. I understand what Joel's saying, because it would be very inorganic if someone is leading you to the conclusions and you aren't naturally coming up to them by yourself. Otherwise, mm-hmm. what's the point of um, what's the point of therapy? If like it's not there for like someone to tell you the answers, it's there for you to find the answers. Mm-hmm. You're just being in an environment that's naturally conducive to the such conditions. And it's a very interesting that Joel again brings up a lot of machinery imagery. He says like the noggin is a self-contained unit. Uh, Holling says how you know it's a possibility that it could leak. And <laughs> oh, yeah. I think there's another way of looking at it by saying like Joel is kind of looking at it at a, as a systematic machine approach. He even says like up to now I've avoided dream analysis because it wasn't consistent with my approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't Joel say something like uh, how dream science is like a little looser or something like that? It's not exactly science. He says it's like a soft science. It's a soft science. Whereas he's more mechanical, as you're saying, or he's more of a... You know, he, he's looking at it in terms of that, or at least that's the, those are the metaphors we're trying to make here. Let's see. I think this ends with Joel sort of dismissing Hauling because of uh, Maggie is maybe, as you were saying, like leading him, guiding him. And he's like, look, I can't talk to you anymore right now. Like come back later. And um, obviously Hauling gets out of there. I like before the scene ends though, Maggie gets a, a nice, like, tough look at Joel. And she does leave, but it's like she gets her own little close-up reaction, uh, tough look at Joel. So the next thing that's going to happen involving this plot line is that Joel is going to show up at Ruthann's store, but it's going to be deep in the middle of the night. I'm going to say it's like 12 o'clock or something like that. And he's banging on Ruthann's door because he wants to buy some sweet tarts. But as we figure out pretty quickly, <laughs> Joel is not actually driving this car. He is sleepwalking. Yeah, I mean, he's in his like, what do you call that? What can I pajamas? think? Yeah, pajamas, robe, I think maybe. Uh, and it, the way he talks to Ruthann is it sounds like, almost like he's a little boy in a way. He says, Miss Ruthann, or he says, Miss Miller, can I please get some sweet tarts? And he's like, 
not necessarily even looking at her. Obviously, it seems like he's playing sleepwalking. And I think it's pretty interesting because Ruthann is like, she's closing her store. She's like, Joel, I'm sorry. Like, what? it's so late. What are you doing here? And she like even like waves a hand in front of Joel's face, which is what shocks him awake. And I think that's a pretty interesting disturbance as Rob Morrow plays. And he's like, oh, he almost like falls in like almost almost like he's fainting or something, almost like falls to the ground. Yeah, Ruthann, it's like talks him through it. She's like, look, I had a son that used to sleepwalk. He would sleepwalk for like blocks and blocks in the middle of the night. So I've seen this. Uh, you're going to be okay. It's it's whatever. But Joel is um, already now starting to um, starting to put put some weird things together as if like maybe this dream stuff is starting to get out of hand. Um, though I don't know if he reaches the conclusion yet about like he's taking someone else's dream or he's getting someone else's dream. I think that comes later with a conversation with Marilyn. But uh, before we get there, Holling has the next scene. Yeah, and that idea is kind of being demonstrated in Holling scene where he wakes up from a dream and he's saying that it was a strange one where he was kayaking with a spatula and <laughs> Shelly connects the dots and says like, oh, that must be Dave's dream right there. And so like we're we're being presented now with the idea that like the dreams are indeed being swapped amongst like all the townsfolk. This isn't like an isolating incident. This is something that's spreading throughout all the people. Yeah. And there's a joke when Shelley says, you know, aren't you going back to sleep? And Holling says, why would I do that? I don't want to dream about Dave's first wife or something. You know, he says something something to that effect, which is, um, I guess, a knock at Dave. I don't think we've ever met Dave's first wife or second wife or whatever's going on there. But um, poor Dave, they're giving a knock against him. But um, yeah, there's a deleted scene. That's what I was thinking of. Um, It's pretty short. So I'll just explain it real fast. It's like Shelly is trying to help Hauling have dreams because earlier he says he's not getting any dreams. And uh, she's feeding him like uh, jalapeno peppers. She says like, that'll do the trick. Something spicy before you go to bed. We'll give you some dreams. That's basically all that happens in the deleted scene, except there is a short mention about the baby catalog again, looking for a stroller. And Holling's like, I can't do two things at once. Like, I can't do the peppers and the baby stroller right now. Like, let me, let's talk about that later. So, again, we're drawing a connection, uh, even especially in, in that deleted scene, a direct connection between perhaps dreaming and um, the, these lack of dreams and, uh, and this baby stroller. Mm, okay, that makes a lot of sense. I was wondering what he meant by that chili line. <laughs> and now we're going to see the pieces finally start to become connected with Joel because he's going to be in his office and Marilyn is going to come in. They're going to have like a short conversation about Joel's dream. And he relates it like how odd it is that he wants these milk duds and sweet tarts and all that. And Marilyn says like, what's likely happening is that you're swapping dreams with that eight-year-old boy patient that you had earlier. You wouldn't let him have any candy And now the boy is dreaming about candy and Joel is starting to become like uh, more acceptable of the idea Mm -hmm. because Marilyn also talks about herself and says like during the winter, I dream about crowberries, but uh, that's not the season for them, but I want them. So my mind subconsciously has these dreams of wanting them. Yeah. And so Joel can now can now see the connection in his head that this boy, Timmy Newstrom, uh, who has been denied candy by the doctor, would dream of it when he can't have it. So yeah, he's starting to maybe jump on board here. I really love the ending of this scene because Joel, you know, still bucking is like, 
you know, you're trying to suggest that I'm having the dreams of a nine-year-old boy and Marilyn says, he's eight. And then immediately walks away. Like she immediately leaves, <laughs> like not even letting Joel finish his thought. And Joel's reaction is so good. He's just like, I think he's sitting there with like his arms out. Like, what do you, you can't just leave. Like, but it's nonverbal. And I think it's really hilarious. I gotta, I gotta make a reaction <laughs> gif of that or something. <laughs> now we're getting to the intercutting of Chris. Right. Uh, he's on, he's outside, he's with Walt and they're talking about uh, all of the dreams that are happening in the town. And Chris has his notebook. He's trying to connect the dots to be like, oh, this dream belongs to this individual. This one belongs to this, this other individual. And he is specifically with Walt because Walt is troubled by the dream that he is having where he's climbing up this tower and mm. he never mm. really reaches the top right there. And they don't really know who the dream belongs to. So this is why Walt is reaching out to be like, hey, do you ever reach the end of this uh, never-ending staircase? Yeah, he's like, whoever has this dream, if it's a recurring dream, like, please let me know. Do you ever get to the end? Yeah, it's an interesting system. Like, Chris has started, like, a log of dreams. I don't know if he's, like, connecting the callers or if he's having people come on air and, like, tell their dreams with the hopes that someone listening recognizes it and they can connect the dreams to the original owner's because I think they already, they did at least one, is what Chris is saying on the broadcast. And he's, uh, I don't know if we mentioned this, he's like steps outside again, doing another outdoor broadcast. And I think it's cool, he's got like, um, so normally he he uses like that, or we've seen in the past, I think it was an old tree when he started doing this, but he, um, he had like the little Burger King headset microphone, but he's got a really interesting sort of handheld retro looking microphone. It might be a harmonica microphone just from the shape, but I can't really tell. I've never seen him use that mic before. I just thought it was a really flashy, cool looking, almost looks like one of those like old timey vocalist microphones, but it has like a, a metal fin on it. Whatever. It's just a cool, cool look, I think. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. And now we're brought back again with Joel. We're returning back to this plot line where Joel is apologizing to Maggie, saying that like, I think you guys are on to something. Now that I'm experiencing it, I think mm -hmm. that perhaps dreams are being exchanged. The noteworthy thing that's happening here is that Maggie's working on a truck. She is mm -hmm. trying to put on the tires. She's trying to make sure that it's back in tip-top shape. And Joel continues to assist her in that. And while he's helping her with the truck, he kind of cracks his own jokes. And one of his jokes actually involves a mechanic says like you know it's this joke about a mechanic gonna go see a psychiatrist and he says uh you know when he goes inside there the psychiatrist says like hey get under the couch yeah yeah he opens up with like to break the ice with two very bad psychiatrist jokes like i think that was the second one like he starts with one and it you know doesn't win maggie over he tries the next one however the way the scene ends i guess as a sign of acceptance and like accepting Joel's apology, Maggie tells a joke at the end, a psychiatrist joke. And I also think that one's not very good, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the writers were just chomping at the bit, you know, trying to get those jokes out. Right. I do think there's a curious bit of dialogue that's happening here where Joel says like, uh, light can be both like, um, oh, yeah, like a wave or a particle. It's mm -hmm. basically essentially saying that like it can exist in two different realms and so can like the bumblebee. It should not be able to fly and yet it does. And I think they're trying to relate this by saying like we shouldn't be machines yet our brains do kind of operate 
in that manner right mm-hmm. there. Yeah, I like that. Like, you know, trying to define the human brain as a machine, you know, it definitely checks a lot of boxes as a machine and as uh, sort of like some unexplained magic, you know, at the same time. So we can see with these metaphors, it kind of applies to that as well. And I do like also another thing Joel says in this scene, um, you know, he does concede to Maggie. He says, maybe you are having Holling's dreams, but the important thing is that he thinks you are. So like, I've got to do my job and help him find some insight. So whether or not it is happening and he's like conceding is like, it may, may very well be happening. Uh, the, the most important thing is that Holling believes it's happening. So I think to work with them, this is going to be very helpful, you know? Right. Yeah. Well said right there. And now we're going to get another scene between all three parties right there. And they're finally on equal ground where they're trying to understand each other. And they deduce that Maggie is having Holling's dream. But more than just that, the man in there is Holling's father. And it's relating to a memory of Holling learning to drive with his father next to him. His father was quite abusive. And was like threatening him just like the same way that he was threatening Maggie right there. Mm -hmm. And while that makes like a whole lot of sense to Joel, he thinks that that doesn't solve all the problems because he he wants to get down to the the root of the food problem Mm -hmm. and saying like, wow, this may all sound really nice. I think that this one is more important. But Maggie points out to be like, no, 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 no. I think the parent stuff is very important as well. And that's what leads Holling to realize that maybe these dreams are a way to subconsciously remind him that there is a bond between him and his father, and maybe he's going to be a terrible parent to his own child. Yeah, because this, is this the dream with the, like, chopped beef sandwich? Is that what it's called? We haven't gotten there yet. Okay. But no, we don't have to go, yeah, we don't have to go that far ahead, but, um... Yeah, they're talking about, yeah, you're right. So they're talking about how abusive his father was and that there's definitely probably a connection with how Holling might be afraid that this sort of abuse could happen again, you know, with his child. But I guess actually right as they're about to sort of start moving in that direction, Joel says, okay, and that's the hour. Like, you know, they got to get out of there. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess it's probably best that they... You know, they don't keep talking about it for too long. I guess there's reasons why you set a time limit to it. You could be overthinking it. I also wrote down that, like, Joel's wanting to make sure that Maggie doesn't influence Holling or guide him to a certain thing. He's like, let's focus on the food aversion aspect. Couldn't Maggie or Joel have been like, okay, let's step into the other room for a second. Holling, stay here. Like they could have talked about it outside. I guess things were maybe just moving too fast and maybe maybe Joel was keeping his eye on the clock and so he knew that there wouldn't be time for that. But I, I kind of wish they had like kind of stepped aside and talked about it. Mm. I guess it just might've been too aggressive. Maybe like they just want to demonstrate mm-hmm. that like Joel trusts Maggie now enough that he's willing to talk about it in front of Holling. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so we get another dream. This time, Maggie is sweeping the porch, and she's dressed differently, right? She's kind of dressed in a dress, mm-hmm. and Holling's father makes an appearance, and they start arguing about this chipped beef on toast. That's what I was bringing up earlier. There's like a, a sandwich on the ground, and she's defending it. She says, this is my son. 
it's kind and loving. Like you can't talk to it that way. And this is also kind of parlayed into basically, I think Joel or Hauling is, or Joel's like, and what happened next? So she's like describing this dream to Joel and Hauling, like when they're in his office, we cut out to that. But yeah, any notes on that dream or like what happens next in that scene? Well, there's a lot of imagery of food again. Uh, I think Maggie talks about stew and lemonade also being Mm. present. And of course, the chip beefs on toast (laughs) right there. But overall, like the big thing about this scene is that like, obviously, that's uh, an analogy to hauling. Like that chip beef oh, on yeah. toast. <laughs> Hauling is the chip beef on toast. It's funny because at the end of this scene, Joel says, you know, there's a theory that says that you are all the characters in your dreams. It's all you, even though they're different characters. And so Hauling's like, so I'm my father, my mom, and I'm chipped beef toast or something or chipped beef on toast. It's funny to me. I don't know. But I think that we leave there with this sort of revelation before we actually wind it all together. The next time we see Holling, Shelly is preparing like a late night snack. Of course, Holling is still food averse. And uh, Shelly's talking about like, you know, I, I don't know what it is. Like, I'm still hungry, but I ate, she talked about all this food that she ate earlier in the day and how she's still hungry. And it's really interesting because we start with Holling in profile, just the sight of him. And as she's saying all this stuff, the camera begins to wrap around until we're like face front on to hauling sort of like this movement sort of shows like a mental revelation or a change. And I think it's because like the milk that uh, Shelly is pouring for her late night snack. I think she's got like Oreos and milk um, is sitting right in front of hauling. And he has this revelation. Like this is all where it started. Like you were saying earlier in the episode, Charles, like this all started from milk. And he says, where does milk come from? Shelly says cows. And hauling says, yes, it also comes from mothers. So it's a whole, it's like, I think the Freud fellow was right about something. So I guess even still, they can't, they can't talk about uh, catalogs and babies and stuff. So there's still some issues going on. I don't know. Right. Uh, that's what leads to the revelation, like you were saying, and Holling excitedly leaves. He goes to find Joel and says like, hang on, like, I, I got it all figured out. Even though you didn't tell me the answer, you did your role to guide me to that answer. And he's saying how he doesn't have to be like his father. He can just be like his mother. He can break the cycle and be a kind parent. And that's what like the milk was trying to represent, that it was like uh, his mother's milk. Yeah, it's a really great performance here by Holling because he enters Joel's office with excitement. Like it's the middle of the night and he's just had this breakthrough and he's trying to explain it to Joel. And we start off with Holling describing... um, you know, how when he grew up, he thought his mother was weak because his father always bullied her and belittled her all the time. And now he realizes that, you know, today his father was just like very cruel and he's worried that that's what he's going to become. But as you said, Charles, like he can, he says he can be his mother. He can be kind and giving instead. He doesn't have to become his father. And the performance, as I was saying, is really interesting because Hauling starts by being excited about talking about this. And then as he's explaining it, how he used to think his mother was weak, like when he was a boy, we can see there's like a certain shame to him. And then fear, of course, of like becoming his father. Yeah, it's just a nice range of emotions that we see. And at the end, Holling says to Joel, you cured me 
watch. Like he grabs a, a cookie off of the uh, tray in the room and eats it. He's like, see, I can eat. And even that like ending, I thought was a, a pretty powerful performance. Yeah. Uh, it's an elegant way to tie up the storyline between Holling and then we're going to lead to another final radio address from Chris. He's reading from Gabriel Garcia Marquez's A Hundred Years of Solitude about how people would dream images of other people's dreams. And Chris muses how, like, you know, maybe that's the natural state of things. Maybe we're supposed to be dreaming about other people's dreams. Maybe there's, like, this grand netherworld where, like, all the dreams pull together and we just take from there and just learn about other individuals through these dreams. Yeah, the whole collective unconscious idea. He says, aren't your fears my fears? Aren't your wants my wants? Don't we all drink from the same human cup? He, he does this whole passage from Jung talking about, in a way, how dreams might unite us all by like taking us away from our individuality and connecting us to just like an indistinguishable entity bear of all egohood. So yeah, that's an interesting idea. And I just wanted to also point out that copy, that edition of 100 Years of Solitude, I have the same edition. Like it's a really colorful <laughs> green book uh, cover. Um, but yeah, you got to throw in some Carl Jung, of course, with Chris. Like who else is going to, who else can deliver that? Chris Stevens is such a huge Jung fan, so... Right. And then, interesting enough, it cuts to the Aurora Borealis, as if to say, like, we all stare at the same Aurora Borealis, just like we all drink from the same cup right there. Mm. And Joel is outside on a bench, and Maggie comes over to comfort him. Uh, Joel starts talking about how, you know, he didn't actually guide Holling. He kind of came to the conclusion himself, and he's uncomfortable with that notion. Not that he wanted control, but more that, like, he just doesn't even want to approach that area really because he just wants to go through life thinking people are happy he thinks that this is not an area in which he is comfortable going through people's private thoughts they are theirs and he just wants his yeah joel's familiar with physical trauma but definitely not mental trauma like he says this is basically something new to me he doesn't have a lot of experience witnessing that whereas like you know he's like pulling bullets out of people back in New York and like, you know, surgeries and things like that. So, you know, I guess the sight of blood doesn't disturb him, but any mental trauma is kind of harrowing to him, at least at this point. And I mean, like, granted, like his profession isn't a psychotherapist or a psychologist or therapist or anything like that. He's in a different field, so he doesn't need to do that. But it's nice to see that at least, you know, for Joel, this might be uh, something new and hopefully he can come to, um, experience this mental trauma more with his patients. Uh, though I think he did a great job. And, you know, even though he says he didn't cure Halling, um, I'm sure Halling was very thankful that Joel, you know, did that for him, that Halling didn't have to go to another doctor somewhere else. Uh, he could like sit with his friend and work through his trauma. Uh, Maggie invites Joel over for a cup of tea. And, you know, there's a nice little romantic bit there, but we also see various characters in town draw their window drapes as the Aurora Borealis is like reflecting on their bedroom windows. Like we get, I think, uh, Shelly and Holling, Maurice, maybe Ron and Eric as well. We kind of like visit these different characters. And uh, the final image is <laughs> um, not as odd as like the birds of a feather one with Marilyn, but Marilyn, it's kind of 
cute. It's like Marilyn staring up at the Aurora Borealis. I think she's like sitting out in nature and she's whistling. But I couldn't help but thinking like, She's like the puppet master controlling because we talked about how whistling can make you, you know, the, the Aurora Borealis dances with you when you whistle. So she's like controlling all these dream uh, connections, which is a more sinister way to look at it. But it's a very cute ending, I think. Right. Okay, Charles, now is the time in our podcast where we like to invite on a guest, typically someone who has never seen Northern Exposure And uh, this is our way of expanding the reach of the show and getting an outside opinion. Like we've just given our thoughts on this episode, but let's take someone completely fish out of water, drop them into the jungle of Northern exposure and see what they, when they come out, what they, what they say. Uh, This, this week's guest is John Ryan, who apparently is uh, an alum of the college that I went to. I don't know that we were in college at the same time, but we share a lot of friends, including last week's uh, guest, um, Sean Price. So John Ryan and Sean and a bunch of friends are all part of this group uh, that we started in quarantine to watch movies, like a movie club. Actually, it started as a way to redo the Oscars because we're so uh, confident <laughs> in our abilities or in our judgment of movies. You know, we have our tastes. So, uh, but yeah, this has been a great just sort of like film discussion group. And I was really excited to get Sean on last week. And now John Ryan, who I really value his opinion. Um, but yeah, this guy just watches a lot of movies, um, and a lot of movies that I've never heard about, but I think he has a pretty good take. So let's see what he thinks about Northern Exposure watching this for the first time. Hey guys. So I got questions. How many Northern Exposure episodes open with a dream sequence involving a bilingual dog, bilingual bossy dog? How often does Northern Exposure incorporate light fantasy elements like it does with the or Borealis and the uh, sort of dream switching. That's crazy. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the season four finale of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I was uh, beyond stoked to see that I got a dream episode from my first ever viewing of Northern Exposure. Dream episodes can deliver just like awesome moments, but they can also go so wrong, easily devolving into nonsense, and uh, really glad that didn't happen for this. I really enjoyed this episode. My first ever experience with any of these characters, with this show in general, and uh, everything, not everything. Most things are great. I really enjoyed uh, Joel's attempt at Freudian therapy uh, with Holling. Yeah. The taxi dream sequence uh, climaxing with a mother defending her son, uh, who happened to be a chipped beef sandwich from an abusive father, was a delightfully weird payoff to that series of delightfully weird dreams. It was all over the place on this episode. My brain thinks in terms of serialization just as a product of modern television. And knowing this is the 12th episode of a season of a standard network TV show, I assume there are like 22 to 24 episodes. I can't help but think of this as a natural midpoint of the season where things are slowing down, taking a break. We've got like a nice little pit stop to observe the characters and their relationships as we kind of ramp back up for the second half of the season. And uh, this is, of course, a stupid conclusion. For all I know, this episode is uh, in line with Northern Exposure's typical vibe. And uh, I really enjoyed that vibe. What a vibe it is. Really liked that there's uh, this kind of patient pace to the editing. That's likely a product of efficient production on a strict budget, but I appreciated how every conversation was given a lot of room to breathe. 
these characters are talking, but uh, we're not constantly cutting back and forth between reactions, which was pleasant. I like that all the radio scenes have a very cinematic feel with the uh, the panning camera, and uh, thought the episode went big with the uh, the POV shoe dreams and even the limited but nice period detail in the uh, Canadian taxi dreams. Uh, one element that that troubled me. I just I can't decide if Corbett's DJ would drive me insane. I, I don't know how much of this is informed by Corbett's, you know, 21st century acting career and my experience with him. Uh, but just that, that radio monologue near the end of the episode was just a, a bit too tidy for my tastes. I was wondering if he, like, does he always act as a, a commentary on the action, voicing themes the audience probably already inferred or should have inferred? It didn't ruin the episode or anything, but I couldn't handle that every episode and you know he does so little else besides play poker that it just is he even a character or is he just a disembodied voice i don't know you know and i'm left with curiosity is this a typical episode of northern exposure i was already asked is this the worst episode of this season will i sound like a total fool for praising an episode that you guys just trashed uh, am i a huge fan finally discovering a new favorite show probably not but man flip these on every once in a while and really enjoy it um i think that's all i got thank you guys so much for exposing me to this uh, charming episode of television and for letting me be a part of this uh, northern exposure journey all right that was john's thoughts on the episode well john remarks how often is it that we begin with a bilingual dog well john it's the first time that we ever had that but it actually got me thinking is the dog bilingual because that, that's bilingual Canadian. means yeah. Well, like, bilingual suggests that it can speak two languages, but it doesn't speak any language, right? Like, dogs... Is dog, like, is dog a yeah. language? <laughs> yeah, is dog considered a language? Is that recognized as, a, as yeah. an official thing? I guess it's a bilingual scene, because Maggie is speaking English and the dog Canadian French. But yeah, it's not very often that we start an episode with a bilingual dog, but we do, um, we do often start Northern Exposure episodes with dreams. Like they're, I mean, dream sequences are common in a lot of episodes of Northern Exposure. Maybe not so much lately, but there was definitely a time, Charles, where every single episode that we watched w- would have a dream sequence. And a lot of times they'll start with, with a dream sequence, but um so, so that's very common. The light fantasy elements, uh, that was also another question from John. That is definitely uh, a, a large part of Northern Exposure. It's supposed to be this kooky, small town with a very almost supernatural vibe. Um, but, you know, sort of a lighthearted fantasy um, experience, maybe, perhaps. I guess magical realism is one word that some people have described it as. Yeah, and John also describes that he had a lot of hype for this because he is a huge Buffy fan. So dream episodes were something that was like right into his wheelhouse right, right there. Yeah, which uh, I, I know that John was like a little bit fretting about whether we were going to like trash the episode or whether this like was a universally panned or it was terrible. But no, dream episodes are very on par with this one. And I want to say that like, it was, I mean, from my recollection, I thought it was an okay episode, right? Yeah, this was a, this was not the worst episode in the season by far. 
now I'm trying to think of what the worst episode. There, there's definitely been episodes where we were like, uh, you know, we're kind of showing up for work and we're I mean, we're going to talk about the best aspects of this episode, but we can't deny. Shoot, didn't we? Didn't we say like episode one of the season was not that good? I can't remember. Uh yeah, actually, we did. I don't know if we said it was not that good, but we were very skeptical of it because. This is the season when David Chase joins Northern Exposure. And to an outsider, that sounds amazing. Like The Sopranos, David Chase. But to a Northern Exposure fan, I feel like a lot of fans of Northern Exposure absolutely hate David Chase, particularly because like this is when the... Um, I guess specifically because this is when the show maybe starts to fall off the rails. But it's been a pretty good season so far. Uh, it's crazy that he's still relevant like by Chase? that, I, yeah, yeah. By that, I mean the like we just got at the time of recording, uh, the Super Bowl has already aired, and <laughs> there was a David Chase directed commercial in there. Sopranos definitely like came back after like the first year of pandemic. I feel like people started watching. There was definitely a movement of that was like rising in popularity. Like, what's the new show that we're gonna binge? Because I don't know. Yeah, because we're all at home. That is crazy that it, it it fell on the Sopranos because it was it wasn't like that's not an indie darling like everyone knows what the Sopranos is. I guess it's just like you know before Breaking Bad, it was like one of the greatest shows on television, like before streaming, you know. But now yeah. they're streaming. Yeah, so I, I guess that makes that makes sense right there. Uh, John has <laughs> like like you remarked. John has obviously got filmmaking knowledge because he remarks that he really likes the uh, cinematic feel whenever it goes into Chris's DJ booth right there. Mm-hmm. And I believe the word he uses is like uh, a panning. Yeah, there's like definitely a lot of cool camera movement where the camera instead of cutting because he mentions this like what does he say? He enjoyed the patient pace to the edit. There's, uh, he says that's maybe um, evidence of an efficient production on a strict budget. Like maybe they just had to shoot it this way. They didn't have enough time to break out all the camera angles. But, you know, whenever you kind of stick to one shot like that, you're not always cutting away to all the angles that you had time to set up for. You're stuck with one shot. And in order to, I guess tell the story efficiently, you got to move the camera around because you can't cut and like reset up the camera in another position, relight. You just light the whole scene and do that panning that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely gives it a cinematic feel. Um, and the he, he also points out, he also appreciated the limited but nice period details, like in those, uh, probably in the Maggie um flashbacks in in Canada though I guess they're also like in in um the like Maurice dreams they're kind of like what is that like 1950s modern or whatever like what's that style but there's there's some fashion differences in those dreams John says that he he can't decide if Corbett's DJ would drive him insane. I think most people really appreciate the charming John Corbett, but there is one other guest that I can remember, uh, Jordan Prince, in a previous episode. Which was that? It was an episode with, like, Chris and Bernard, maybe? No, 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 no. I can't remember. But he was just, like, so annoyed by Chris sort of, like talking himself in circles and being like overly philosophical. And <laughs> it's kind of funny. He's like just talking about how how Chris would drive him in, or sorry, John said drive him insane, but uh, 
but but Jordan was like, I don't, I'm, I can't imagine that I would ever listen to this radio broadcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the radio monologue, like I said, is like very tidy. It ties a neat ribbon and it summarizes the thoughts and experiences of the episode. It makes for a useful tool. And I, I guess if you just missed it, like the subtext, Chris can bring <laughs> yeah. it uh, forward. I uh, I don't know. I never thought about that. I don't think he grates on me though. Maybe it's just because I'm used to it though. Yeah, we're used to it, and it's not always. Um, he's not always just like summarizing what we just saw, but that does happen a lot. But you know, sometimes it's it's not necessarily summarizing the conclusion, but highlighting certain thoughts and ideas that are maybe sideline to our to our like plot the track of the plot. Um, but also giving you time to reflect on the ideas that you're watching and just really sort of like talk around these big themes. Though, you know, I think when it's done worst is when it is just sort of like a fancy little ribbon, as you're saying, kind of tying it off at the end and just underlying everything that we already saw and understand as an audience. It's like, okay, we get it. You don't need to uh, double down on this. But yeah, usually it's a it's a very inviting, comfortable uh, moment of reflection and just really great uh, sort of poetic language. So, so yeah, maybe we're used to that with Chris. But yeah, to conclude here, John says, you know, is this uh, is this now like is he now a, a new huge fan of Northern Exposure? Maybe not, he says. But you know, he 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 wouldn't mind flipping one on every once in a while, and I think he says he'd enjoy it. Uh, so I, I'd say that's a that's a thumbs up. That's a a, a vote of approval from John. Uh, but thanks, John, for watching the episode, taking the time to provide your thoughts here. Uh, really glad to have you featured on this episode. But Charles, uh, that'll wrap it up for Mr. Sandman. Next week we're going to be talking about season five, episode thirteen. It's going to be called "Might Makes Right." However, might is spelled M-I-T-E, might makes right. So now, Charles, do you have any guesses for what next week's episode might be about? A might is, uh, that's that insect, right? Yeah. It's like a, like a bed bug type of thing. I think or like, so. Like a flea or a bed bug type insect, perhaps. Yeah. So I'm guessing that like the town gets overrun by like some sort of bed bug thing and they all have to, they all have to sleep outdoors. I'm going to go with that. Nice. Yeah. I mean, with that in the title, mites are going to have to be in the episode. Yeah. They, they, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, you say that, but then we had a cup of Joe. So like, right, which has, could be misleading. Yeah. Like a cup of Joe episode. Technically it's in a deleted scene, but it still doesn't make any, whatever. We don't need to talk about that. Go back and listen to our cup of Joe episode. That was episode nine of season five. Next week, Mike makes right. All right, Charles. I'll see you then. All right. I'll see you then. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to John Ryan for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.